Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. It's the morning shift. I'm Jen White. It's Friday, and that means it's time for our Friday News Roundup. And today, we'll dig into some of these stories from the past week. The U.S. Department of Education released its new agreement with CPS, ordering a second review of complaints and requires CPS to make significant changes. Timothy Evans was elected to another three-year term as chief judge of the Cook County Circuit Court. Ann Burke will become chief justice of the Illinois Supreme Court when she's sworn in next month. She's the wife of indicted alderman Ed Burke. Please help me in welcoming to the stage the 2019 WNBA Head Coach of the Year, Coach James Wade of the Chicago Sky. Our panel today includes WTTW political correspondent and host Paris Schutz, Daily Line managing editor and City Hall reporter Heather Sharon, and Chicago Tribune City Hall reporter John Byrne. Welcome, everybody. Happy Friday. Happy Happy Friday, Friday. So I want to start out with this news out of CPS. The the district just entered an agreement with the Department of Education, which would allow federal oversight of its reforms in handling sexual misconduct cases involving students. John, give us the details here. The feds are calling it a historic action to protect students after uh, this long investigation. The Tribune had a, a series of articles detailing over a decade of uh, failures to protect children, police reports that weren't followed up on of sexual assault or abuse of of students within the schools. So the Department of Education is is saying that they're going to step in and uh, uh, kind of make sure that the school system follows through on reforms to protect children. How significant is it that the federal government is stepping in here? You know, they're saying it's an unprecedented situation. So we're going to have to see how this plays out in terms of the significance of the actual enforcement. We don't really have a context for for how this is is all going to work. I mean, it's certainly... They say they would withhold federal funding, but we don't know exactly what what funding that is. Are there specific grants that would be okay if CPS doesn't comply? And it appears that this started in 2015 under the last presidential administration. It continued under current Education Secretary uh, Donald Trump's uh, Education Secretary, Betsy DeVos, who had scathing words for CPS, too. And and so this, this, on top of the Tribune investigation, on top of a CPS IG investigation, on top of the Maggie Hickey report, an outside report that found all of these problems, no Title IX coordinator in CPS. Now, they say they've, and this report says that they have started to iron out all these problems because of the scrutiny. And this all comes uh, in the midst of, of, of a battle over over a new teacher's contract with a teacher's union, and the teacher's union wasted no time making this kind of a political thing, saying, hey, another another instance where, where CPS administration's fallen flat, they haven't hired enough social workers, although I didn't hear CTU say anything that they did in their union to train their teachers on sexual harassment and, and how to handle these complaints. Well, Heather, talk about Mayor Lightfoot's response. I was struck by it. She basically said, well, we know who Betsy DeVos is. She's a, a conservative Republican who has championed charter schools and who has fought to reduce funding for public education. And she basically said, well, you know, whatever she says, I'm going to take with a grain of salt, which is really a different tone than she was striking during the campaign when she basically suggested 
suggested the entire CPS leadership should be fired for their role in this scandal. And basically, CPS should start over from the beginning. So the crucial question is, are there still ongoing problems? Are students being abused? Are students filing complaints? Are those complaints not being properly handled at this moment? I think that's the question that I don't know the answer to, and I don't think anybody knows the answer to. It was wild, though, for her to, to for her to say Absolutely. to make it about DeVos when nobody has been looking at the investigation and saying, "Well, we don't agree with these." Findings. I mean, uh, Janice Jackson has basically said, "Mia culpa. We're going to try to fix this. We, we, this is horrible. We're going to do whatever we can." And for the mayor to say, "Take it with a grain of salt," because it's coming from DeVos, was it was striking. Well, and she had an out here. She could have simply said either by name or not by name, blamed it on Rahm Emanuel and said, right. look, th- these were problems under my predecessor. I was elected to undo this sort of uh, inside dealing and lack of accountability. So, you know, I'm glad for the federal government's help and, you know, we're going to keep on keeping on. That was not what she decided to say yesterday, which I think raises uh, qu- even more questions in my mind. And what is this? what kind of pressure does this add for Dr. Janice Jackson? I think that it, it, reading between the lines, her job is okay. Uh, uh, you know, she says we've we we've made huge reforms since I got here, and a lot of this does predate her. Uh, I mean, Mayor Emanuel appointed her, I think, uh, in the last year of his administration. Before her, it was Forrest Claypool. So, I mean, if there's someone that's going to be under under the spotlight for this, it could be him. It a could lot be of it is before him. Before too. him, Barbara Bird, yeah. Bennett, J.C. Brizard. Yeah. You know, going back a decade. Um, so it does seem like uh, this doesn't stick to her. I don't think this is. I think it's fair to say this this was not under her watch. I mean, this is something she inherited. What occurred to me was that it's another black mark on the Chicago public school system. I'm a graduate of it, and it, it, it you know hurts my heart a little bit. But um, I wondered, as a district that's facing significant enrollment decline, does this you know, make parents again think a third, a fourth, a fifth time sending their children to Chicago public schools. It certainly can't help that enrollment decline, which is really the biggest fundamental issue facing the the district. And and the agreement uh, lasts for three years. That's how long the Department of Education will monitor CPS. John, what could happen if the district is found to be in noncompliance at some point during that time? You mentioned the loss of federal funds, other things. There's this theory that they could withhold federal funds, but it's just, it's not clear how much money they could or would withhold. Theoretically, it's the, it's the feds. They could come in and demand changes in leadership. They could come in and put monitors in the, in the central office. They could, you know, they could staff this up any way they want. I mean, the way this, these federal monitorships have worked in, the, in other agencies is if, if you're not in compliance, you keep the monitor. You know, it's going to go beyond three years. If you are, you'll lose the monitor. I mean, they, they, we've seen some county offices that were monitored for 20 years. Well, the Shackman years. decree Shackman. was, was 40 years right. in, in, in the city of Chicago. Right. You're listening to the Friday News Roundup here on The Morning Shift. Our panel today includes WTTW's Paris Schutz, The Daily Line's Heather Sharon, and The Chicago Tribune's John Byrne. Turning to another local story, circuit judges yesterday voted by secret ballot to choose the next chief judge to oversee the Cook County court system. And the winner was Chief Judge Timothy Evans, who's held that position for 18 years. Paris, what do we need to know about Chief Judge Evans? Well, this would be the longest uh, tenured chief judge in the country. Uh, he won by 
about a third over over his challenger, Judge Lorna Propes, who um, made the case that uh, there needs to be term limits. It's 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 pretty stagnant when one person's in charge for so long. And this is a non-perfunctory issue here. I mean, I mean, he he is in charge of a two hundred seventy-something million dollar budget. He is in charge of policy here. So we we know recently in the last couple of years that he has instituted a policy directive for his judges to follow when administering bail. You know, he wants to make sure that bail does not harm people who can't afford it and just and, and throw people in jail awaiting trial just because they're poor. So judges now are, are following that directive. So he has a significant influence um, over policy, but but he did face a, a pretty significant challenge. And, and, and he did three years ago, too, uh, from Judge Tom Allen, a former alderman, and he's he's beat it every time. He did better this time than he did last time, right? He it did. was closer three years ago, even as as this sort of... Well, and yeah, and three years ago, it was it was it was kind of politically back. Tom Allen right. has has uh, backing from Burke. And, right. and, and the other interesting thing here is, you know, he's no friend of Tony Preckwinkle. Sure I mean, they, they were rivals when, when they were, in, were ran for city council, and they have disagreed in policy. But he's a, even lesser friend of Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who's been very critical of, of his bail uh, reform practices. And, and, you, and you mentioned this. I, I want to understand how important his voice is in this debate over bail reform. It's very important. The judges are following his directive. They instituted a protocol that judges need to follow when they decide who gets let back out on the street and who is going to stay in prison awaiting trial. Well, speaking of judges, earlier in the week, Justice Ann Burke was tapped to be the next chief justice on the Illinois Supreme Court. Heather, of course, her husband, Alderman Ed Burke, currently faces 14 federal indictments. How much of a surprise was this? It wasn't a surprise. They rotate the chief justice position on the Supreme Court, and it was simply her term. But I think Paris said it best on Twitter, uh, it, you know, only in Chicago. Or only you, in Illinois. Only in, in Illinois. Illinois. <laughs> you know, it's an awkward situation. And let's not forget that Ed Burke led the slating of Cook County judges for decades up until his criminal case was filed. Uh, So would she be a judge without Ed Burke? Probably not. Is she accomplished in her own right? Absolutely. She's done a lot of work with founding Special Olympics, and she's worked with the Catholic Church to investigate the um, abuse cases. But it does raise the specter of just, for lack of a better term, weirdness, although it should note that that he's facing federal charges and that she would never be asked to rule on those, those charges. But it does give you a sense of just how close knit Incestuous. I was going to say incestuous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, but but that question, that weirdness question. I mean, it, it, if she wouldn't be overseeing of his cases or any judgments regarding um, him, but there's still this this question about whether there's some ethical ickiness. There, here. there is, and optics are terrible. And, and there's no doubt, Ann Burke is a judge. Justice Burke is is very well regarded by her peers. Um, it's not to denigrate her service at all, but. The Burks have operated as a political unit. Ed Burke held a fundraiser at their house for Tony Preckwinkle when she was running for county board president again. And Preckwinkle said it was Ann Burke that was running the fundraiser, which then um, – which now we don't know really if that's true or not. That did come under scrutiny. It did come under scrutiny. And, and the, Supreme, the state Supreme Court reviewed it and it said it doesn't violate any of our protocols, but they didn't tell us the rationale or, or the reasoning why. So there is no political firewall there, and that's unfortunate because if, if, if the public wants confidence in this system, you'd think that the justice would at least want to address, well, you know um, – my husband and I do not talk about these issues, at, at, at least some kind of perfunctory 
statement. What good? But what she, what, she's, what I, faith would that give us? What, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like short of short of some sort of it's, official firewall, her saying we don't discuss these things. I don't know. I, that wouldn't give me much confidence. Yeah. No. And, and, and you know, I say only in Illinois. Not just. Be, I don't mean to assume that somehow Ed Burke uh, engineered her becoming the chief justice. I mean, yes, she's he's been very influential in her career, but. The connections, the family connections, the nepotism, these familiar names that we see all over state and city government and the judicial branch. I mean, it just feels like one of those things that that happens um, only in this land of Lincoln. Well, something that's perhaps being um, overshadowed uh, by the connection between Chief Justice Burke and her husband is the fact that she is only the third woman to take on this role. And and that is significant. It is significant. And she has a long history of sort of championing the underdog and sort of being a progressive judge as she's moved up through the appellate court ranks and then to the Supreme Court. But I think that the central question is, is what sort of faith do people have in the judicial system to be run fairly, honestly, and openly. And all too often, we find ourselves talking about every branch of Illinois government, sort of that being in question. Because let's not forget that there are at least three corruption investigations going on right now at City Hall. We don't know what the outcome of those will be. And run through those quickly for us. Uh, well, we have um, we have an indication that the federal government is looking into House Speaker Michael Madigan's ties to Commonwealth Addison. Uh, we know that a former alderman, Mike Zalewski's uh, house was raided. We know that Marty Quinn, the alderman of the 13th Ward, who's also very close to, to Mike Madigan, is also being investigated in connection with this. And then, of course, we just had a huge report that found that sexual harassment and abuse was rampant in the Illinois House. It's, you know, people are predisposed to think that the fix is in and this doesn't help that. You're listening to the Friday News Roundup here on The Morning Shift. Our panel today includes The Daily Line's Heather Sharon, WTTW's Paris Schutz, and The Chicago Tribune's John Byrne. Some other stories we're watching today. For the fifth year in a row, the University of Illinois at Chicago has seen record growth, in part due to its merger with the John Marshall Law School. Meanwhile, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign saw its freshman class grow slightly, and enrollment was flat at Governor State University in the south suburbs. That's after a few years of decline. And the city of Chicago has been installing hundreds of concrete barriers along the lakefront. Water levels have reached near record highs this year, leading to shoreline erosion and dangerous conditions for pedestrians. The barriers are meant to help and are going up at six sites on the north side and two on the south side. Mayor Lightfoot took a step towards increased transparency this week. She issued a proposal that passed the Ethics Committee and is heading to the full city council. John, just explain what the mayor's trying to do here. She's trying to give the uh, City Corporation Council more authority to uh, release the investigations that the city's inspector general undertakes in high-profile cases like, for instance, the Laquan McDonald uh, police shooting case where uh, the inspector general said that about a dozen police officers should be fired for – taking uh, Officer Van Dyke's side in things, even though they had evidence to the contrary. This would allow the Corporation Council in, in these kinds of high-profile cases to say, here are the names of the officers that the uh, Inspector General says should be fired. The FOP is predictably uh, incensed by this idea. Some aldermen are also concerned about this move. Well, there's aldermen concerned on both sides. One alderman, Ray Lopez, says it doesn't go far enough. The inspector general should release all reports. And other aldermen say, well, this can be sensitive stuff and open up the city to litigation. I mean, if the Corporation Council, I, I don't know how 
sort of firm the standards are that that allows him to release uh, the information. So so they could go to court over this. But I was going to say, as a reporter, you know, over the years, I, I found it really interesting that in state law, an inspector general report does not go public. You cannot get your hands on it unless the agency that it is investigating agrees to release it. Mm-hmm. And so by the time you figure out what kind of wrongdoing happened, you know, the agency has already had a chance to kind of spin the results and say, whip, we've already fixed it. We've done this and we've done that. And it was that Laquan McDonald report for, for the city inspector general that, that I, I, I called the inspector general. I, I said, can you release that report? They said, well, that's up to the police department. And I was like, that's, that's up to the police department. I mean, they're the ones being investigated and they're the ones deciding whether or not this report will ever see the light of day. And so, the FOP so this, counters, though, that the inspector general is not fair to them, that the media is right. not fair to them, and to, to allow this to happen short of a court ruling is just throwing their members under the bus. But increased transparency is something Mayor Lightfoot ran on. I'm, and so how important, Heather, is it for her to get this? And and it's a small step, but it is a step. How important is it for her to oh, get this Oh, absolutely. She'll be able to point to this. I assume it will pass on Wednesday, uh, along with a previous package of ethics reform that she pushed through in July before the council's break to say, look, I'm, I'm making good on that promise to bring in the light. Uh, one other thing I'd note is that there is a clause in the revised rule that would prevent the city from releasing any reports regarding employees whose collective bargaining agreement with the city prevents that release. So I would imagine that that will be a source of much discussion once the negotiations over a new police contract starts in earnest. And I don't understand why every union wouldn't try to get that for their members. So it's yet to be seen whether this will actually take a step toward transparency or if there's just too many loopholes in it. You're listening to the Friday News Roundup here on The Morning Shift. Our panel today includes The Daily Line's Heather Sharon, WTTW's Paris Schutz, and the Chicago Tribune's John Byrne. A couple of other stories we're watching today. Mayor Lori Lightfoot has announced plans to reduce traffic deaths and serious injuries on the city's west side. The West Side Vision Zero initiative calls for $6 million to improve 43 high-crash intersections, as well as 25 CTA stations and bus stops. And the head coach of the Chicago Sky is the coach of the year for the WNBA. The Basketball League presented James Wade with the award Wednesday night. Wade says he was voted top coach because he led the team to win seven more games than last season and earn a spot in the playoffs. Congratulations to him. Um, I want to touch on on one other story quickly before we move to state news, and that's the fact that this Tribune investigation found that over the last 15 years, the city of Chicago has paid out $213 million to private lawyers in police misconduct cases. And, And Considering what we were just talking about, about increased transparency and pushback from the FOP, I mean, John, just put this all into some context for us. It's a great story. The the one uh, tidbit that I loved was that last year alone, the city spent over $30 million on private attorneys to defend cops accused of wrongdoing, which is more than twice what the city invested in the agency that is in charge of going after police misconduct. It's the city says we don't have enough uh, lawyers with the expertise to take these on. We we've got to, we're, we're doing our best to to live up to our obligations here, but the optics on on this are are obviously really bad. You know, John Burge and a lot of these other high-profile police misconduct cl- cases People are saying, you know, you're going to spend this kind of money defending guys like this when we don't have enough 
mental health. We don't have all – you're pouring money into this, and, and it just looks really bad for the city. Another tidbit there, who was one of those lawyers in the past that the city farmed out work to? Lori Lightfoot with Mayor Brown. I mean and, – and, and the, thing, the thing about this is that the, city, the, the Corporation Council, the, the law department's office has how many lawyers? 200, something like that. And yet – and they don't make high salaries. I mean this is all in-house. But uh, lawyers that they're bringing in are charging – what three four hundred dollars an hour? Right. Oh, I think in in Hinkle's story in the Tribune, Lightfoot charged eighty eight dollars for a quick phone call. Right. I mean, this is great business for law firms, but this is really rough for taxpayers. Well, and it's also coming at a time when, of course, the city is facing an eight hundred thirty eight million dollar budget gap. Heather, I was going to say, I'm sure that Lori Lightfoot would love to be able to slash that two hundred million dollars right off the top of the city's budget deficit. The other issue is, is that it's going to do two things. One, it's going to bring the law department under increased scrutiny when it comes in front of the city council for its budget hearings uh, next month, and the uh, other thing it's going to do is it's going to renew the push for some sort of civilian oversight of the police department. And the idea being that if you can stop misconduct before it happens, not only are people not harmed, maimed, killed, traumatized, you also don't have to go to court and pay lawyers and spend this all, all of this after-the-fact money. And, you know, the city might actually be a more just, equitable place. And that, I think, uh, Lori Lightfoot will have to, you know, she campaigned on that promise and she will have to make strides toward it. Well, Heather, I want to stay with you to talk about this disturbing report out of DCFS, the Department of Children and Family Services. And the report found that 19 children have died in the first 11 weeks of the current fiscal year. These were children from families that had some kind of contact with DCFS. Just explain the details for us. Well, this was a watchdog report that our Hannah Meisel at the Daily Line was uh, was able to report on, and it paints a continuing picture of a state agency that remains in turmoil. DCFS was the subject of a, a marathon hearing uh, this week in here in Chicago by state lawmakers um, who pressed agency leaders to sort of say, how are you fixing? How are you fixing this problem? And part of the issue is that the department got nearly $90 million more in this state budget than it did last year. And the idea was is that they would take this money and correct some of these issues. And that does not appear to be happening as of yet. The other issue facing DCFS is that all of the agency's uh, children that they're responsible for, which is somewhere in the neighborhood of 17,000 kids, will be moved from one health care system, a regular Medicare system, Medicaid system, to a managed care system. And so that's different doctors, that's different processes. Um, and there were several state lawmakers who were very concerned that the agency just isn't ready to deal with that amount of change and that children could fall through the cracks as well as those who have aged out of the foster care system who are also covered by this health care system. And they might not know that their health care is changing and may find themselves unable to get access. And these uh, young adults are some of the most at risk for trauma and violence and mental health issues. So if there's a situation where they're no longer able to get to their doctor or they have to change doctors or they you know, sort of throw up their hands and say, I don't even know what's happening, that, that poses a real risk for these children. The story contains just harrowing details of a, of a seven-week-old baby who died mm-hmm. after what appears to be pretty significant abuse. And the question is, you know, what can the state do? Well, after, I mean, what can the state do? That, that's the fundamental question, that 
you know, we've had, uh, you know, something like a dozen directors in the last decade. It's been a revolving door, significant problems of accountability and caseloads. Let's not forget that the caseworkers are out there doing, in many cases, yeoman's job with dealing with more kids and more cases than, you know, is typically the case in other states. So the question is, well, they've got more money. Is that going to solve the problem? And if not, what else needs to be done? Well, DCFS has pointed to um, some success they've had, including increasing access to, to psychiatric care for minors. What else are they pointing to as, as positive moves? Well, they're hoping to reduce those caseloads. They see that as sort of the fundamental task that they have to do and that everything will, will stave from that. And the idea with changing this healthcare system is that it will be more efficient, it will be more effective, it will save money, and that money can then be turned back into direct services uh, for these children. Uh, the question is, is, is it going to cause more harm than good? And uh, that's an open question right now. Well, let's wrap up with news about a longtime political player in Chicago, Reverend Leon Finney Jr. Pierre, just remind us who he is. Well, Leon Finney, for decades, is, he's, he's, uh, he's been a pastor on the South Side. He's uh, run a company called the, the Woodlawn Development Corporation, which was, has gotten um, millions of dollars in contracts to provide uh, affordable housing. And as you mentioned, he's been a political power player. He's been at the sides of Mayor Rahm Emanuel and Mayor Daley and Mayor Jane Byrne and you know, the mayor, mayors would always go to Reverend Finney as kind of their entree into the South Side uh, African American community. So he's a major figure in, in South Side politics and African American politics. Well, Heather, we learned that the feds have opened a criminal investigation uh, against Reverend Finney, and the, and the problems he faces involve some pretty complicated financial dealings. Can you just give us a quick overview? Well, essentially, his corporation has been contracted with the Chicago Housing Authority to oversee the management of those apartments and those homes for people. Um, we also also saw this week that Mayor Lori Lightfoot ordered a review of the housing agency's contracts with his organization and to make sure that there wasn't anything that the city could do to address those issues. But uh, I think we all read these stories by the, the Sun-Times and then later by WBEZ to just sort of, you know, my mouth sort of dropped open. The judge basically said, you've been perpetrating fraud on the public. And uh, again, you know, these are people who are most at risk of homelessness, most at risk of violence and trauma, who have have really perhaps fallen through the cracks a little bit you, here. Yeah, you don't hear judges speak in terms that stark very often. And, and yeah. so now, and, and Finney, uh, you know, part of he, the problems he said he had were he, he didn't pay taxes for a long time because he didn't have... Payroll, he, t- payroll taxes. Payroll taxes mm-hmm. um, because, be, because he was broke. And so now if he's facing a full-on federal investigation, he's going to be in, in all kinds of financial... He's 81 years old. But so, this is not the first. I mean, there no, have been rumors right. about Finney for so long. I mean, on the one hand, I, my my mouth fell open, but on the other hand, it was kind of like, all right, well, it's it's surprising that it kind of it took so long for us to get to this. But we should place. say, you know, he has this long history of community activism in Chicago. He has a lot of supporters, no doubt. Oh, absolutely, and political connections. So I'm wondering what you'll be watching for as the story continues to unfold, Heather. The first thing we have to see is does the city take action against him? That's probably the most immediate potential action. Federal grand juries uh, can take their own sweet time in uh, making decisions and uh, issuing indictments. Uh, But if, you know, people are at risk now, I think the city should feel an obligation to act, uh, especially because the city is in the midst of a huge affordable housing crisis. The CHA took away his his contract for the 4,300 units. And so now it'll also be interesting to see, like, 
as you say, like who else is going to manage this? They need somebody to manage these contracts. Who's equipped to do that? And how quickly can the CHA, which has been slow to act on a lot of stuff, turn this around? And is now without a, a leader, a leader right. because Eugene Jones just announced he was leaving for Atlanta, effective uh, immediately. And Paris, what about you? What will you be watching? I'll be watching to see what this federal investigation uh, uncovers. And, and it's interesting that the, the Mayor Lightfoot, you know, didn't. She launched a probe, but didn't throw him under the bus again because it speaks to the the influence um, and the esteem that he's built up. So we'll see if that erodes, um, and and we'll, we'll see where this investigation goes. Well, before I let you go, I'd love to hear what other stories you'll be watching in the coming weeks. John, I'll come to you first. City Council next week after a, a little bit of a break. So uh, we'll be looking to watch and, and and see how aldermen who feel like um, the mayor maybe hasn't been a solicitous of of them as they would like, whether whether this uh, sort of uh, revolt against her agenda takes shape. I, I tend to think she's got the support and the votes to to move ahead with what she wants to, but but we'll be watching to see if aldermen start to publicly kind of kick back against her a little bit. Heather, what about you? On Tuesday, the city council will hold a subject matter hearing on whether the city's minimum wage should hit $15 an hour uh, in 2021 as opposed to 2025 when it will go statewide. And that will be a test of the mayor's uh, progressive agenda. And it's sure to draw a furious pushback from the business community who consider it, would consider it another sort of way to sort of push down their profits and, and make their lives more difficult. However, there will be, I'm sure, dozens of people testifying that people need this to live. And Paris, quickly from you. This issue of uh, uh, the lawyer Michael Shackman um, suing uh, Cook County Clerk Karen Yarbrough for oversight, alleging there's all kinds of patronage hiring um, going on there. Now, this is very interesting. Yarbrough was the recorder of deeds before. She's very close to Speaker Mike Madigan, and there's always been talk about patronage hires, and she flatly denies that anything funny is going on. All right. Well, we will be watching those stories. Our panel today for the Friday News Roundup included WTTW's Paris Schutz, The Daily Line's Heather Sharon, and the Chicago Tribune's John Byrne. Thanks, everybody. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. Thanks for downloading and listening to our Friday News Roundup. Our brand new morning shift will drop into your feed just in time for your Sunday morning coffee. Until then, I'm Jen White. Have a great weekend, and let's talk again soon. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.